No, you you guys and uh, the Wem ladies definitely have the upper hand on good, consistent podcasting. I wouldn't go that far. No, you wouldn't go that far, but we are neither good nor consistent. You guys, (laughs) well, I think because you, you guys are so professional with your, your seasons and your, your schedule. (laughs) Oh, I was talking about the, we explain move. I think we're great. I just, I don't know if I agree that, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) They're great. I, and I truly fuck those cunts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, I have our intro That's gonna be our intro (laughs) Hey there, I'm Jordan And I'm Nick We're just two regular guys who love talking about film And now, we'd like to talk to you We decided to break down our discussions into three parts Because everyone loves a gimmick We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it That's take one We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. Django! Django, have you ever... Oh my god, I love that song so much. We are jumping right in. I'm sorry. I had to just tell everybody that. <laughs> We're getting into it pretty quickly, but the soundtrack to this movie is so fucking bitchin'. Wonderful. Django is truly, like, one of my absolute favorites. I've heard people say, you know, say that it's like a white savior movie, and I'll admit it certainly does kind of seem like that. But I also think that it really does showcase a lot of great black talent, and uh, it tells a really awesome story of like love and revenge and if you haven't seen it the good guys win so (laughs) i was so stoked when he suggested it by he i mean daniel at some point during this podcast i'm gonna ask him why or if he goes by dan at all it's danielle 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 Okay, sorry. We got ahead of ourselves. Welcome to take three. We are doing Django Unchained. I want to to hear how you feel about this movie and how you experienced this movie. I genuinely can't remember the first time I saw this movie. I don't remember if it was in theaters. I certainly enjoyed it. And I'm trying to run through some of the scenes in my head to try and like bring back what the movie was about. Like I know what it's about, but the specifics like I I remember that Leonardo DiCaprio's in it I know there's a lot of fighting there's a lot of violence comparing it to something like Kill Bill is a little bit interesting because that's kind of where my mind immediately went to because I was like well Kill Bill has a lot of violence as well but I'm much more comfortable when I'm watching Kill Bill it's not as like it doesn't make me as squirmish as as uh, Django did that one's difficult to watch for sure. I do remember enjoying it. I do, like you said, I, I, I do enjoy the ending. Obviously, it's a very satisfying ending. But yeah, I think it's up there as far as Tarantino movies go. I, I really enjoy it. Well, good. Have good. we watched it together? Yeah. Maybe once at least? Yeah, at least once. Um, I feel like I've only ever seen it two or three times. 
I saw it in theaters. It came out on Christmas Day, and I saw it the day after Christmas because uh, nobody would go with me on Christmas Day. Like, I was just hooked from the very beginning. I had really gotten into a Tarantino craze with Death Proof when Grindhouse came out. And then I remember seeing Inglorious Bastards and this in theaters and just, I mean, it was just on another level. Was Death Proof your first Tarantino film then? Is that what you're saying? In in theaters, yeah. What, can you tell, like, what was the very first Tarantino movie you ever saw? Was it Kill Bill? It was Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. My sister and I were watching Reservoir Dogs, and <laughs> we we sat through the first scene, and we were like, I don't know if we're going to like this, and we turned it off. <laughs> That's what happened yeah. when you tried to show it to me. It Was was it Reservoir Dogs? It was the one where they're all in suits, yeah. and their yeah. colors are names sitting mm-hmm. around the table. That is Reservoir Dogs. I feel like Dogs. that's exactly what happened when you tried to show it to me. <laughs> I was like, I'm not into this. Yeah, like. Uh, and then we watched Pulp Fiction, and I remember watching some sort of m- weird amalgamation of Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. It was all fucked up. And uh, I didn't really even love Kill Bill the first time I watched it. And then... Wow. Uh, yeah, I didn't because it was all mashed up. That's like... Oof. Yeah, I know. It's it's my second favorite movie of all time. Did I just hop dimensions? Oh, my God. <laughs> Where am I? Once I saw them separately, I was in love. Death Proof actually like came out in 2000, I think it was 2007, and I have been hooked ever since. And so when Django came out, uh, I don't, I know I at least dragged my sister to the theater. I think maybe one of my cousins came as well. We got into the movie theater, and I realized that one of my exes was sitting right in front of us. Rose. in the next row and i was like <laughs> oh this is really awkward so like the first viewing experience of Django should have been really uncomfortable and awkward but i literally forgot he was there <laughs> that's good it it really does feel like two different movies put together you have this real life violence that was actually carried out uh, against black people and you know slaves and then you have this really hyper stylized tarantino violence mixed in towards the end and the movie really does become more of a, a revenge tale and that's when when you get the taste of kill bill it very much feels like the showdown at the house of blue leaves with the music blaring and it's just ugh. i have the soundtrack I remember one of the first things I ever bought you was the soundtrack. Was the Django soundtrack? Yeah. You bought me the Hateful Eight soundtrack. I do not own the Django soundtrack. You have the Hateful Eight soundtrack? I do. Really? I mean, I know the first movie we ever saw together was Hateful Eight, but I really thought the the Django soundtrack is much better than the Hateful Eight soundtrack. You bought me the Hateful Eight soundtrack. Well, now we have Spotify, so soundtracks (laughs) are... (laughs) I don't know. You probably threw that CD away. Like, what's a CD? <laughs> yeah, but whatever. I feel like I, we probably had Spotify back then, too, but it's a nice gesture. It was a Quentin Tarantino movie with Samuel L. Jackson in it. <laughs> um, oh, I forgot he was in it, too. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot I don't remember about this movie. And so, like, kind of going through, again, my love of Quentin Tarantino movies, Jackie Brown came a little bit later. I, I love Jackie Brown, but I appreciate that it's it's different. But Hateful Eight is so wonderful. I think that's my second favorite 
Um, and it's the first movie we ever saw. We had literally just met. And so that was mm-hmm. really, that's like really special to me. There isn't a single movie of his that I don't fucking adore. Like, I think they're all so great. So when Daniel picked Django, I was like, okay. <laughs> From the conversation that we had about this movie, about what movie he wanted to do, I'm not so certain that he's going to like completely talk favorably about this movie. And I'm a little worried that. Yeah, that's okay, though. Like, I, I am open to hearing yeah criticisms. Like, I'm fully aware that this movie was written and directed by a white guy and features an inordinate amount of the N-word. But I also understand the rebuttal of that where it's like it takes place during slave times. Like, I don't know. That's the way a lot of these people spoke. But is it up to a white guy to tell such a story? I don't know. All I can say and and all that we can offer from this podcast, all that we can offer from this episode is three white guys' opinions. And we have to really (laughs) preface that. That, yeah. you know, this is – Daniel's white, uh, Jordan's white, and I'm white. And we are all not capable of fully understanding the gravity of the themes that are brought up in this film. And I don't know that Quentin Tarantino is either. I don't think so. Yeah. Jesus, we haven't even introduced Daniel. Okay, so I have a pretty interesting past. I used to be a grave robber, and I would rob graves – Uh, Near and far, from here to there, from the Mississippi to the Rio Grande, I think that those are rivers. But basically one time, I was digging up a grave, and I was like, holy shit, there's a guy in here. And so I opened it. (laughs) Was that a surprise? Yeah. (laughs) That reminds me. It reminds me, I don't even know if we've gotten this far in Arrested Development, but it's all over. The, it's this meme on the internet where he pulls out a bag from the fridge that says dead bird, and he looks inside and he's like, well, I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> There's a fucking dead bird inside. That's yes, you funny. rob a grave, there's going to be a body inside of it. Well, yeah, I don't know. But uh, I was like, you know what? I think he deserves another chance. So I took him back to my shed and I reanimated him. And I think maybe it's been about eight or nine years. And now he can fully speak. Uh, He's regained full movement. He has his own podcast. Yes. (laughs) Several, actually. And so we have Daniel. Daniel, uh, he (laughs) runs Super Serious Podcasts, which is sort of like an umbrella that he uses to release uh, different podcasts like Super Serious Movie Men and Super Serious Podcast Man. And we've both been guests on it, and so have uh, all of the We Explain Movies ladies. And it's just really great. He just talks about the stuff that he's passionate about, and he interviews really interesting people. I really enjoy his podcast. He's a really cool guy. He's very funny, and I'm really looking forward to having him on this podcast. Uh, Yes, and we obviously know him through the We Explain Movies ladies. He's very good friends with them, and through them we've gotten to be friends with him. So, yeah, and he's picked Django as his movie. Oh, really? Yeah, believe it or not, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. If you opened this episode thinking that it might not be about Django... (laughs) I don't know what what I was expecting. expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I hate this. (laughs) 
First of all, shout out to Nick and Jordan for killing it as always. Am I right? Yeah, they're awesome. Hey, I'm Stephen Crocker. I wanted to take a second to invite you to check out my new podcast called Dumbest in the Room. I talk with people who have different jobs and are life experiences and learn a little bit about what it is that they do and how they got there. The best way to stay learning is to always be the dumbest in the room. It's been a lot of fun talking with and learning from people, and I hope you'll join me. You can follow Dumbest in the Room at DumbestITR on all platforms, and the show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Back to you guys. Day two. Are we good? It better be good. Okay. That's not good. No, that was pitiful. <laughs> Try again. Are you sure you're not um, Kayleen or Courtney dressed up as Daniel? Uh, let me try clapping my ass cheeks. <laughs> I'll just tease it. No, that one was good. I, I got it. I, I saw them both. I'm just giving you a hard time. All right. <laughs> Jordan, show them up. Oh, I see the technique. Jesus Christ. That's somebody who claps for a living. It's like Jesus on the cross being whipped. (laughs) When you say Jesus on the cross, I was like, I don't he I don't think he could clap. (laughs) Were his feet nailed? (laughs) Yes. His feet and his hands or his palms. Not that ass though. (laughs) We're going to hell. Jordan, you have Alex Honnold hands. I don't know who that is. That's the guy who climbed uh, El Capitan. Oh shit! <laughs> He's oh, got free giant solo. Hands. Free solo. Yes, that that movie. Ah, I see. I've not seen that one yet, but I know. I, yeah, I know what that is. Thanks. I guess I'll take it. Big meaty claw. <laughs> <laughs> Say hi, Daniel. Hello. I'm spending uh, Father's Day with my daddies. Hell yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, no problem. Thank you for coming. We very much appreciate you being here. Uh, Daniel is a fellow podcaster and an awesome person. And, oh, I think I told everybody that you were a corpse that I reanimated. Oh, I don't remember that take one. Why? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, because it's what happened, but I think that's what I told everybody last time. We, we found an oily cadaver on the side of the road. <laughs> Just dug him up. Something like that. Reanimated I think that was him. a grave robber. This has been a little bit. Uh, but Daniel, along with Jordan and I, all recently at least watched Django Unchained. Django. <laughs> do, 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 do. I simultaneously forgot a how great this movie was and b how difficult it is to watch. I forgot how hard it is to watch, but it is a damn good movie. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Yeah, I have been critical about this movie since I saw it for the first time, and I feel like this watching of it was the most I've ever liked it. Oh, great! And I think it's I think it's awesome now. Mm-hmm. Still not my favorite Tarantino, but. <laughs> I think it's, uh, and we'll go into this. I think it's one of his best. That can, can we ask you what your favorite Tarantino is? Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes That's sense. That's mine too. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Like, it's not my favorite, but if I were to pick a movie where I think he actually delivered, like his masterpiece, it really is Inglorious Bastards. And it's funny because, like, the last lines of that movie 
is Brad Pitt saying, I think this is my masterpiece. <laughs> so what's your favorite? Kill Bill. Kill Bill. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Have I'm you a... seen the whole bloody affair? Because that's the one that you have listed on your favorites. So I've Letterboxd. seen them. I've seen them together. I, the whole bloody affair is just so I don't have to pick one or the other. <laughs> I see. Uh, but I've seen them both. I've seen them together. I've actually seen this weird like edited i think the first time i saw it they were like meshed but it wasn't the whole bloody affair i've seen it a lot of different ways but uh this movie i've also seen a whole bunch of different times and when you texted me that jordan i think it was last night when you were like this is a hard movie to watch i'm not i don't think i'm gonna watch this again i'm like it is a very hard movie to watch but i probably have seen it like at least 25 times wow it just hits me like it's the first time over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's different for him because I think it's one of the ones where he actually, I don't want to say has a point to it, but it's making a social commentary that's still relevant rather than just being an homage to the past or some genre or filmmaking. Absolutely. I still like his, I still like his homages quite a yeah. bit, but this one feels like, Oh, there's you're trying something different. And I, I appreciate that you were able to do this. I think when. When Grindhouse came out, Tarantino realized that he couldn't just make anything and people would follow him. Not to say that Grindhouse is a, is bad because Death Proof, I think, is a wonderful entry into his filmography. I think it's it's a lot of fun. But have you seen that one, Daniel? I have. I actually yeah, no. last last. Um, well, during the beginning of the pandemic, at least the first five months, I made sure to see the rest of the, his filmography that I hadn't seen. So that oh, included it was just Death Proof and Jackie Brown at that gotcha. point. Yeah. And, and, and I thought Death Proof was great. Those are the two that Such are at least movie. like his other movies, for sure. Uh, but um, in 2007, when that came out, I think he had a realization that he needed to do something maybe a little bit different. And I really liked this uh, social commentary kind of, I mean, it's more like he's rewriting history. And I don't know how to feel about that. Like, I feel like some people are probably upset that he did that, that he Spoiler alert for Inglorious Bastards. He changed the ending of World War II. <laughs> the original author was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I really like the idea that he is through these movies, through these like big, epic, action packed stories, actually trying to drive home a point to show how bad things were for people and to try to tell a story where they actually come out on top because, you know, it takes the so-called underdogs i don't even know if that's a good way to put it but of of both of these stories and gives them amazing arcs and they win in the end you know mm -hmm. and i like that a lot i think that these two movies uh of all the movies that he ends up making or the movies that he has made are probably going to be the ones that have made the most money and resonated with big crowds the most. Very American and in good ways and bad ways. You know what I mean? Like his other action movie is very 
it feels very Asian in a lot of senses. Um, and maybe it doesn't resonate as that's maybe, maybe that's why it doesn't resonate as well with as many Americans as these two films do. I can't see him going back and making a film that resonates with mainstream audiences more than these two films do. Well, it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that Inglorious and Django are his two most successful movies because in my preparation for this, I was reading a lot of reviews, both positive and negative, trying to just trying to see what all the perspectives are on the movie. Yeah. And someone had made the comparison of Django being a revenge for slavery movie and Inglorious Bastards being a revenge for the Holocaust movie. And I don't really think of Inglorious Bastards as a revenge for the Holocaust movie that much. It doesn't feel like it's as steeped in that as Django is in slavery. Well, and I think I think that's a good thing because I don't think you can show liberated Jews exacting the same kind of revenge Yes, as Django does. But then then you're also you're also towing the line of, OK, why? Why is it we're not comparing slavery to the Holocaust? But why? Why is Django getting his revenge more appropriate than the Jews getting revenge? What the difference is between those two films is that Inglorious Bastards is very much like an ensemble piece mm-hmm. and there are multiple different stories going on and sure they converge. But Django follows Django through the entire film. So you're seeing this movie from a slave's perspective, you know, a, a freed slave, but, a, you know, a slave's perspective in Mississippi. And you know what I mean? Like, it's it's very rough. Like, we are you definitely see a lot of the atrocities that uh, America doesn't always pay attention to. It seems like a lot of people just try to not think about uh, how our country was built on blood, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think because there are so many different stories in bastards, that's not the focus. You know, there are, there are whole story arcs that really don't have anything to do with seeing actual Jewish people being hurt or tortured or anything like that. So I think that's like, where the difference is uh, Django is a much more violent movie in a sense that like you see more of it because it is from the perspective of one individual, really. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it definitely does. And I think uh, you're right about Inglorious Bastards being a ensemble piece. Yeah. I mean, aside from the beginning, when the, you know, in the beginning of, Shoshana's family. Yeah, exactly. Um, there aren't too many. I'm, I'm trying to think. There aren't too many like really horrific showcases of what actually happened. Not that I can think of. I mean, there's violence amongst them, but a, a lot of it is just like the bastards kicking ass, you know, <laughs> and killing Nazis. Yes, maybe it's meant to represent just the the Americanness of maybe. I think there's this video on YouTube that was, I've never watched it, but I think it's called Inglorious Bastards is making fun of you. Maybe it, (laughs) maybe what it's talking about is it's making fun of us because we enjoy watching Nazis get killed. That's valid. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but 
it's hard sometimes to like cheer for people to go murdering people. Um, and a lot of times like in, this is a weird comparison, but I know that like a lot of times in more family friendly movies, if they're going to go kill and fight a bunch of people, they have to be robots or aliens that are like nondescript. So it's not weird that they're like killing humans, but the fact that they're Nazis, like that doesn't, it doesn't really phase me. Like I'm not wincing at what they're doing to these terrible people, you know, like I'm pretty much cheering them on. And I think that that's probably, again, uh, speaking a lot to our Americanness. Mm -hmm. oh, and he's found a perfect way, Tarantino, to take his love for violence and direct it into something that we can root for. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I had said this about this film, uh, in take one, I think I'm again, it may have gotten cut out, but um, it, it, to me, it feels like there are two distinct kinds of violence in this movie. I mean, obviously that there's very true to life, like whippings and, and brandings of things that actually went on. And it feels very realistic and hard to watch. And, and uh, D'Artagnan and the dogs and stuff that just feels it's like gut wrenching, like thinking about it right now makes my stomach hurt <laughs> and the the d'artagnan scene d'artagnan is calvin candy's slave who yes one of his fighting slaves who doesn't want to fight anymore and what what hurt one of the things that hurts me the most i mean him being eaten alive by dogs that's awful but when he's on the ground and uh, Calvin Candy says to him, you don't know what that means, do you? And they all laugh at him and he's he's looking down and it's it's so s sad. I yeah, n not only not only are they going to kill him, they have to mock and humiliate him beforehand. That's probably like my least favorite part of the movie for multiple reasons. One, to me, it almost feels like it was somewhat preventable. Because Schultz was like about to reimburse him and just be like, let's let's continue going. But I understand that Django had to be, you know, continue being in character. And he that's how he feels like somebody in that situation would react. But damn, it's just like really, I don't know. It's for Django to have been the one to sort of stop that. That sucks. Like, I wish that that I wish that that had happened differently. I think it's a great character study. I think one of uh, rewatching this movie, I can safely say that uh, Samuel Jackson's character is probably my most hated character in all of cinema. Like his, his character in this is oh, just yeah. so God awful. And, and it really like by Django making that decision and saying what he said in that moment, um, it, it makes them, somewhat comparable to each other. And it's like, you're supposed to be rooting for Django and suddenly he's showing these, these character traits that are so much different and so much, uh, it's sort of like, it's very hypocritical in a sense, which is exactly, uh, uh, I forget his name. Who does Samuel L. Jackson play? Steven. Steven. Um, it's just interesting. And it, and it really is heartbreaking, both of those characters in both of those moments. And like, you see why, because Django is, playing a character and he is acting in a way that lines up with Steven to, I think to appear more trustworthy to Calvin. 
you know? And it's funny because they don't even know each other yet, but like they actually wind up acting very similar in that moment. Uh, and I just want to point out like Calvin's the, the bad guy here or whatever. These, all these other people are uh, victims of circumstance. Like, I mean, yes, yes, of course. Calvin and all these white people. Of course. I think in the context of this movie though, it's, it's, it's tough to watch uh, Steven's character and as it should be. But yeah, I remember when uh, Samuel L. Jackson heard who he was playing in this film, talking to Quentin Tarantino, he was like, so I'm playing the head house slave. Like that is the lowest of the low. He said, uh, you want me to play the most despicable black character in all of cinematic history? (laughs) And Tarantino went, yeah. And he did the damn thing too. God, I hated him. He did. I mean, he's he's so he's so good in that fucking movie. He is. And it's like, I don't know, sometimes it's hard to turn off seeing Samuel L. Jackson. Most of the time, it's just like, I don't even care. Like, I think he's just doing a great job. Like, he's just I I wouldn't give him like the award for most range. But what he does play and what he can do, I just love. And I would really love for him to be in everything. I just think he's spectacular. I mean, he's probably one of my favorite actors. Uh, but, but before I forget, I just wanted to point out the 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 second type of violence is the Quentin Tarantino violence, and it very much feels like that's what happens right after Calvin Candy dies, or really any time a gun is involved in this movie. Like they did not shy away from any any kind of gore with this with this gun violence in this movie. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I think I think all the all the Tarantino violence is always against white people. And so it's, it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I love watching these <laughs> stupid crackers explode into vol- <laughs> volcanic blood. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Daniel, before I forget to ask, and I know we're like too, way too far into this. Can you give us any sort of background on, you know, when you saw this, how you felt when you saw this? I know you talked about it a little bit, but I know you weren't here for take one. So, yeah, what's what's your take one on this? We normally try to get you guys to uh, give us a take one before we get into (laughs) stuff, but I forgot. No worries. So I'm I'm a I'm a big Tarantino fan. I look forward to every release. And with this one, I was thrilled because it was his first direct western correct me it was yeah because he hasn't made one prior to Django I know that's all he does now but (laughs) (laughs) so I was I was extremely excited to see it I my friend Kevin who is my co-host on super serious movie men (laughs) what up Kevin Shout out to Kevin. He's awesome. He's been my movie buddy for more than a decade. Oh, he's still on gang signs. Did you see that? You can't see him, Kevin, but I saw he was throwing up deuces and stuff. I like it. Okay. I was I was throwing up K's. Oh, yeah. oh look Kevin. at you. Okay. Sign language. He and I were super excited, and that December was our first holiday back from college. It was our first semester in college, so it was our first time seeing each other again since the summer. And I think we saw eight movies together that winter break, and Django wow. Unchained was one of them. And that experience, I remember actually being a little overwhelmed by the runtime. My my first 
three or four viewings of this movie, I I had that that feeling about it. I think I think once you see a movie five times, you stop feeling it anymore. You're just you just want to live in the world as long as possible. But um, I remember really being taken out of it by the pacing. And that was how I felt about it. It was it was not my favorite Tarantino movie. But in 2016, I took a Western film class. Oh, so cool. we would watch we would watch a Western movie every single week. And we started at early in early in uh, cinema history and worked our way up. And it was really it was really cool to see the evolution of the Western from this. Isn't America just fun? We're just going to protect ourselves from the from the Indians over there. And then it transformed into, oh, no, it was horribly violent and innocent people got killed all the time. Mm-hmm. And the last film we watched in the class was Django Unchained. And that was the first time that I remember discussing it with a lens of it having a social commentary. Yeah. Because when you think Tarantino, I mean, we've, we've already spoken about this a little bit, but you don't really think social commentary. You don't watch Pulp Fiction and think, <laughs> what is he saying about the modern world? But this one seems to, at least as I grow more mature and aware of inequities in the world, I am really impressed by what I think it's, what, what I think it's doing with, um, slavery and race yeah and i think it's fantastic and when i was pitching doing this movie to you guys i had said that i want i had a bit of an agenda and to clarify what that agenda is kevin and i did a tarantino episode almost a year ago that is a big undertaking and it was only 50 minutes long so it's hard to hit every base that I think you should hit with Tarantino in 50 minutes. Plus Kevin hadn't seen all the movies. So I was a little irritated by that. And I did, I was not happy with how I talked about certain things. I, I felt that I was a little defensive and not as open to criticism towards the film as, as I should have been. And I, was not happy with the episode overall, and it has turned out to be my second wow. most listened to episode of all time. <laughs> That's just how things work. <laughs> I think that might have been one of the first ones I listened to because I'm like, oh, okay, Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to uh, remedy what I felt I lacked in that first episode. And I'm really looking forward to take three because I, I think I have some interesting directions I want to take my research. I can't wait. That's my background with Django Unchained. Well, thank you for sharing. Getting to discuss this in an academic setting must have been really awesome. It, you know, I wish I could do college over with my maturity level now because I would be less afraid to actually have the discussions you're supposed to have in college. Yeah, agreed. That being said... Whenever I was in a class where we had a discussion, I was always really impressed that it never devolved into name calling or anything. Every discussion I had in college was really constructive and people were able to disagree but still respect one another. And That's great. especially yeah, and it was I mean 
conservatives like like to paint uh, college as being uh, just an, a liberal echo chamber, but that is not what I witnessed. But who says? Who cares? Um, but it, it was it was cool just to look at it from that point of view and actually have the context of the Western genre as a whole to weigh it up against. Yeah. I have a question for both of you. If you had to pick like a favorite part in the movie. So with every repeated viewing of this movie, I think my appreciation for Christoph Waltz's performance grows. At the Oscars that year, there was the big hubbub of him being nominated over Leo DiCaprio. And I think I agreed with that at the time. But seeing it now and just seeing how his character evolves in the movie, I not only am I happy that he was nominated over Leo, I'm so happy that he won because I think it's an amazing performance, which leads me to say that my favorite scene, or at least one of them, is him thinking to himself after Candy has exposed them and the the woman's playing Beethoven for Elise on the harp and he's just thinking back to D'Artagnan being ripped apart by dogs and he's just horribly disturbed by it and I think that just hits home how out of his depth he has been dealing with slavery whereas Django has said you need to suck it the fuck up and this is what I had to deal with on a daily basis and he, he he's finally losing his composure yeah yeah, and that, I think that's followed up. This isn't my favorite thing, but that's like followed up with one of my favorites where it, when he's like, you know, I'm wondering how uh, Dumas would feel, Alexandre Dumas, and he's like, uh, you probably wouldn't feel too great about it. DiCaprio's like sensitive Frenchman or something like that. Uh, and he's like, Alexandre Dumas, Alexander is, Dumas black. is black. And like, D'Artagnan. That was great. What's your favorite? Okay, Don Johnson, who is Dakota Johnson's dad, is also, you know, a very prominent actor, plays Big Daddy, and pretty much everything with him in it. So once they get to his uh, plantation, the conversation where one of his slave ladies is like, you want us to treat him like white folk? And he's like, no. <laughs> I didn't say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then... uh it just, I think maybe one of my like top five scenes in cinematic history is when they're riding into like with, you know, it's like pre Ku Klux Klan raid and none of them can see. <laughs> but then the Avita Zane thing, I mean, that's, I could have jumped up in my chair and applauded in the theater when I first saw that. So pretty much, yeah, like everything, uh, Don Johnson's whole little arc in that film is brilliant. I love it. It's almost the first hour of the movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I was checking the, it didn't feel like it was that long, but I was checking the runtime every now and then. And I think when he, when they blow up, that's, that's 50 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. I really think that, Quentin Tarantino before he retires or whatever needs to to link back up with two specific actors that I think he got the absolute best work out of these two and then Sam Jackson will be the ones that I remember forever when it comes to Quentin Tarantino and they're Uma Thurman and Christoph Waltz and 
I don't know. I I can see Christoph Waltz getting his third Oscar in a Quentin Tarantino film, like <laughs> another one, because he just writes such genius characters for him. I mean, both of Hans Landa and King Schultz are just they're just so good. I think that's why answering that question is such a struggle to me because I like rewatching this movie. I really did have doubts of whether or not Inglorious Bastards was my favorite Tarantino movie. Um, like it came as a surprise cause I don't remember, I remember enjoying this movie. I don't remember loving it as much as I did this most recent watch. Uh, and he's just, he's this master of dialogue. He, he knows exactly how to write his characters in a way that the dialogue and the conversations are extensive, but not boring. I'm not, I'm, I'm invested with, with every conversation. Um, and he has this way in all of his movies of he has these like really quirky techniques that almost come across as maybe amateur, like with the fast zooms and the, and the um, like where it cuts and it has that paragraph where it says, Oh, and they enjoyed this winter, you know, doing the, the bounties and, and all of that. That's, that's a thing because he had to cut about an hour of material out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I believe that it's also like a, throwback to classic cinema like a lot of those techniques were used back in the day so i like that a lot too for sure and i do too and for some reason it's like if i saw this in any other movie i'd be like that's weird like that seems strange but for some reason he just he makes it work and you can spot a tarantino movie from a mile away um and this one just it, it doesn't disappoint and it I don't know. I, it's it's really tough to pick a favorite. So this is like a conversation I've probably had with you, Jordan, in the past. There are a lot of things that define cinema over the different decades, like things that, that make a film feel quintessentially 80s, 70s. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we've talked about like, what are the things that the 2000s and the 2010s are probably going to be known for. It feels like what we do is recycle a lot of things, putting spins on things that already exist. We're the remake generation. That might be something to note because Tarantino, some people say infamous, but I think he's famous for borrowing from other filmmakers. He mm -hmm. does it in such a way that it is uniquely his, mm -hmm. but he definitely takes the best parts from other films and, again, turns out these incredible results. It's almost like he's paying respect to them in a way. Yeah, they are. They feel very much like homages rather than ripoffs. Right. Um, especially in the hands of someone who, again, write, writes such incredible dialogue. Mm -hmm. He definitely like knows how to write and direct aside from all of this. But the way that he infuses all of these elements from all these other movies into his film, it's funny. It feels perfect for our generation. And I don't know that I've ever really thought of it like that. You know, when I think of Tarantino, for some reason, I'm still stuck in the 90s. Like he's... <laughs> He, he's made most of his movies now in the 2000s and 2010s, but his style fits perfectly with this whole uh, sampling remix culture. Yes. Oh, you f took the words right out of my freaking mouth. Absolutely. <laughs> and really, that like just occurred to me. This is great. <laughs> Leo point. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. I also think that like as someone who's not necessarily familiar with classic cinema and doesn't know those references, 
it's just fun. And, and my mind always goes back to, uh, I think it was the moment when he said, say goodbye to Leo's sister. I don't remember her name either. Miss Laura, Miss yeah, Laura. Miss and then they say Bye, it, Miss Laura. <laughs> and he shoots her at an angle that is not like parallel to the frame. And she just gets like yeah. shot out of the frame. And I'm like, if this were any other filmmaker, this would yep. be so crazy. And it would be pointed out and laughed at. He can do anything he wants. It, it, that's it, right. And it brings me really back to that. Can. It brings me back to that interview. I don't remember the, the interviewer's name, but he, he said something like, because I want to Jan, and she had this because argument. It's Why so you have much to... fun, Chan? Yeah, exactly. I get it. <laughs> yes. Why are your films so violent? <laughs> because it's so... That's like the greatest interview in the world. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't think I made it for you, baby. Yeah, we'll have to link that in the description. But it's like, he's oh, yeah. just unapologetic about it. And I, I kind of love that. Even even though I've, I've never really been someone who's a fan of action movies or uh, like violent movies in general. Like, he's just so magnetic in such a unique yeah. way. I think because he has the uh, reputation of being able to pull from older films, I, I'm not going to say that I have seen, you know, all of classic cinema either. I've probably seen very little comparatively to a lot of people. Uh, I'm but, just speaking as someone, one out of three people who have not studied film in college. That's all I mean. <laughs> I No, I totally get it. But like, even when I see something that seems a little off, it just is like in my head, I'm like, Oh, he's probably referencing something. I just don't know. Makes sense. And so, and that's fine. (laughs) I'm like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Maybe someday I will see that film. And I don't, you know, necessarily, I don't know. Like I don't, I don't get too bogged down in it like I would in another filmmaker. And so you're totally right. People, I think give him a lot of, not that he takes advantage of it, but people give him a lot of slack. Like, I think he makes, he turns out quality products, but people will really go on a journey with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I will say, like my point earlier, it, it waned for a bit. I don't think people were as willing to go see, uh, like a maybe three and a half hour plus double feature with <laughs> fake trailers in the middle and, you know, these movies were very much like uh, grungy and it was supposed to be a real true grindhouse experience. I don't know that people were as willing to do that. I think Death Proof was his, has been his only flop, too. Yeah, yeah. Commercial flop. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I heard in an interview, he was really hurt by that. And that was an ode to something he loved so much. And not a lot of people would would get the thing. Yeah, Quentin, you have to make movies for people besides yourself. Yeah, <laughs> and I when I when I see when I see a reaction like that, I think the filmmaker needs to just be glad that they got it made in general. Yeah, because it's it is amazing that they released a three hour grindhouse movie mm-hmm. and were able to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. And that was my thought with uh, Synecdoche, New York, too, because, yeah, it wasn't. It was a commercial flop, but it still got made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Charlie Kaufman should be so happy that he got to do that. And I mean, looking looking at what's on screen, I don't feel like he had to compromise all that much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
my favorite entertainment journalist in the history of the world, her name is Grace Randolph, and uh, she said something one time that really stuck with me, and she was like, okay, so if you're like a painter or an artist, uh, and you make this art, and you can do it however you want to, you only really have to sell it to one person. You only really have to sell one person on it. But if you're making a movie, it's a very different animal because you have to make it for the masses for people to actually let you make more movies. You know, it costs mm-hmm. a lot more money to make a movie than to, uh, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you have to sell it to uh, a wide audience versus just one person. It only takes one person to buy a work of art, but when it comes to movies, this is like a mass market. The The thing is called show business, and we have this discussion, and Jordan's face cringes every time I say I this, it. but it's show it. business, not show, do whatever the hell you want to do. He definitely, like around this time, around the time that Django was made, I think we were at, at a point where he was being able to make a, a successful movie that he liked, and we were all eating mm-hmm. it up. And he's one. He's in the perfect position right now because, as soon as his, I mean, as soon as a certain film mogul became a criminal, I mean, he's yeah. always been a criminal. But as soon as that came to light, and Tarantino wasn't making movies with his production company anymore, Sony jumped at that so fast mm-hmm. and gave him free reign on Hollywood. Carte blanche. And Hollywood was a hit, too. So if his next movie is supposedly his last one, Sony is going to do that again because they want to be the studio that Tarantino makes his last movie with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What I really hope will happen is Tarantino will make Kill Bill Volume 3. It we don't need a... Kill Bill Volume 3. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> no, we don't. There's yes, no do. story I'm going, left. I'm going to cut your audio. <laughs> we don't need Kill Bill. <laughs> it's going to make a billion dollars, and then they will give him so much money to make an 11th and 12th movie that he will continue making movies. So I don't want my favorite filmmaker to stop making movies before I turn 30. God, that sucks. Like... I don't want him to stop. And I know that don't he you can... want him to go out on top, though, and not do a Spielberg and make Ready Player One or <laughs> The Post <Okay>. or <laughs> Tom Hanks going Ready to... Ready Player One was a joy, and I don't see that happening. I just really don't. Like, to me, I think Spielberg stretches himself too thin. Okay, so we've recently... Uh, done Jaws, I think. I hope that episode has been released by the time that this is released. And that was like a hungry filmmaker. You could tell, you know? And I I don't feel like, I mean, rightfully so, I don't feel like Spielberg's that kind of filmmaker anymore. I think that Tarantino still feels like that to me. Maybe it's maybe I'll just have beer goggles on and he's just a hot blonde. No, and, and I, you know, I don't. I don't think he would ever do his version. I mean, I feel like his version of the Spielberg phoning it in would still be good by Spiel by uh, Tarantino standards. Yeah, I agree. But that being said, I, I think he's got to be very careful with being indulgent. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. 
But anyways, um, what I'm planning on researching is the criticisms about whether it's appropriate for the film to depict slavery the way it does. And if Tarantino is the right person to do that and jumping off that, I'm interested in seeing researching discussions about who can make what sort of art, because that, that came up in the previous episode I did on Tarantino and I'm just I'm just interested in seeing if certain stories should be only by certain people. But if you create the stories yourself, maybe that's your right to film it the way you want to. So one of the things that you might be talking about is the fact that this is a a white individual making a movie about slavery. Yes, that that is that is 100 percent what I'm referring to. I mean. Yeah, that's that's some that's a reason why maybe I was a little bit apprehensive to hesitate do this film. Yep, same. It's like three white guys talking about a slavery movie made by another white guy. So as long as we as long as we contextualize that, that all three of us are white men uh, and we are acknowledging our privilege of that. Yes. Uh, then I, I'm really excited to hear the things that you find. That'll that will be really cool. Yeah, that that was my my main reason of picking this is having a conversation about whether it's appropriate or not. I love that. Cuz yeah, cuz like as as white people we should educate ourselves and yeah. that is yeah. that is something I'm definitely trying to to do more and engage in opinions that are foreign to me. Yeah, or, or not foreign, just different than my own. That could teach me something. No, I totally get what you mean. But um, this has been wonderful. I'm really excited to learn more stuff about this film. This is a film that I feel like I know a whole lot about already. So I'm I'm really am excited to learn more stuff and just have a great conversation with you both. I feel just like. You guys brought up so much stuff in this take two that I had no idea about and never even thought about. And I'm just sitting here just like absorbing it all. And I I love it. And I'm very much looking forward to doing the same for take three. We're going to well, dive we, right in. <laughs> I look forward to hearing what you have to say as well, Jordan. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what is that look on your face? What are you going to research, Jordan? Oh my God. Like this is making me realize how maybe in over my head I am. I just feel like I'm against two Titans for this movie. And it's, Oh, shut ugh. up. No, I, I love it. I love never, it. And never use the adjective Titan to describe me ever again. <laughs> and actually only use the adjective Titan to describe me. I like that. No, I think it's it's making me realize that as much as I created or co-created this podcast to be like a resource for learning and stuff, having so many guests in a row is making me realize that like I I am very much a part of that journey as well and I'm I'm learning a lot through this. So I'm so excited. I I can't wait. I hate using that word. It's it's the dreaded e word, but I truly am very much looking forward to this. Yeah, see when it was just Jordan and I, I always made him look really good by comparison. Uh, but now that you guys are all here, it's like, oh, maybe Jordan's not so great either. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not, I'm not the, uh, 
I'm not the head guy anymore. <laughs> Maybe take three is is just like a children's school bus that's on fire and <laughs> heading over a cliff. Save oh, us, God. Daniel. Save us. Save us. Yeah. Ow. What can I do? <laughs> Put out the fire. Take, and slam on brakes. I can take this the same tone that Bo Burnham does and just be like, wait. As a comedian, I have the power to save the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Now you you guys and uh the Wem ladies definitely have the upper hand on good consistent podcasting. I wouldn't go that far. No, you I wouldn't go that far, but we are you neither can... good nor consistent. You guys, well, I think because you, you guys are so professional with your, your seasons and your, your schedule. <laughs> oh, I was talking about the We Explain movie. I think we're great. I just, I don't know if I agree that, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're great. I, and I truly. Fuck those cunts. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I have our intro. That's going to be our intro. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to I May Get in Trouble for this podcast. It's your boy T. Cook. And it's Brianna Monet. Tune in every week for Trouble Tuesdays. Where we cover current events, controversial takes, and unpopular opinions. You know, things that may get us in trouble. You don't want to miss this. Take three. I want to say that I am not prepared for this yes you are this is gonna be you are prepared. the worst episode in the history of this podcast well that was a given and that's what people are expecting <laughs> by now they already know it's gonna get canceled you, your show is gonna get canceled <laughs> not 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 in the the social way you're gonna get contacted <laughs> by a network and they're gonna cancel you <laughs> oh my god that was that was his ulterior motive all along was to get on to to cancel us to get us off the air <laughs> he wanted to be the only podcast in the girls hearts <laughs> that ship has sailed <laughs> next is sweet film talk he's gonna go in there and infiltrate them it's i was actually listening to their latest episode today and it's about a a 1980s horror film with a, a group of boys and they would always like reference that group of boys as saying the boys and it kind of threw me off a little bit every time i heard it i was like we didn't <laughs> like do i don't things. remember doing this movie yeah no it it's was a great fun, movie though. by the way you guys should um watch it that's what i hear is it on shutter uh i know courtney and i paid to rent it on Amazon. I saw that. Yeah. I got about maybe 10 minutes into the description of it all and was like, I really want to actually watch this movie. You should. Yeah. I think there's, there's some points in their explanation where I was like, Oh, I wish I'd have wa watched this first. Um, yeah. You should watch it first. So I will. And then I will definitely listen because I absolutely love them. I was talking to Courtney and I don't know about you, but, I feel a lot more connected to the episodes when I've seen the movie. 
and it's been like 10 movies since I've seen <laughs> what they're talking about. And I watched this one with Courtney originally before they, I think they had even planned on watching it or uh, explaining it. And it just felt good. And it just made me appreciate the movie so much more. <laughs> yeah. You have like a, a permanent backstage pass to that podcast. And that's incredible. I'm so jealous. I do. Yeah. Which I mean, like I said, the last 10 movies I haven't seen. So take that, <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. But <laughs> but I mean, even cause don't they, do they normally record at your place? Like with Courtney or is it, does it change? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I figured. Cause Every you were there time. when I recorded for Vivarium. So. Yes. I, that was the whipped cream thing <laughs> that's right i forgot about that <laughs> oh man how did that go by the way was it as as fun as you'd hoped it would be did i send you the video no because i i i was at my girlfriend's place and then <laughs> i i i filled her in about what happened and so then i shot a video of walk walking up to her with the whipped cream can and i go okay kate get your boobs ready and she goes <laughs> okay oh my God. For reference, uh, I think we were in the middle no of No context. Let's leave it there. <laughs> All right, fine, fine. I'll let I'll let everyone just wonder. <laughs> no, uh oh, man. Jordan was recording his episode of We Explain Movies, and uh I was I was in and out of the apartment and I needed to borrow some whipped cream for <laughs> dessert pr- purposes, legitimate legi- dessert purposes. Yeah. And uh just randomly asking that, I suppose, <laughs> sounds funny out of context. <laughs> Absolutely does. Guys, what are we talking about today? So Daniel comes in and is like, oh, I'm so not prepared as he shows us his double-sided sheet of notes. And uh, it's funny because when we have guests on this podcast, I usually kind of take a back seat for take three. And I'm like, we can fill time with three people. It's fine. I think you'll be okay. You're probably more prepared than both of us combined. So it's it's going to be a well, good you, time. You say double-sided page of notes, and most of it is quotes. So That's fine. That's fine. We'll make but it did work. You guys, did you guys learn anything in this three-week break between <laughs> take... Oh, my God. What is happening in Nick's face? <laughs> I found the filter. <laughs> There is that better. <laughs> Give me sugar. I'll sugar this is water. <laughs> I'm going to record the podcast like this. Go for it. For anyone wondering, Nick has, and this is appropriate for the episode, uh, a Klansman filter <laughs> through Facebook message messenger yep. video video. We really are gonna get canceled. Yep. Okay. So we are doing take three. Um before we start, is there just anything that you guys want to talk about? Address? Is there anything that's new? Because, and I'm not, I'm not attacking you, Jordan. It has been a little while since we've recorded take two, and I just want to know if there's anything new in y'all's lives that you would like to to speak about, to tell everyone about, or anything. I don't know. I don't think I had started my new job when I when we recorded take two. So that's, that's awesome. That's the big, that's the big life change for me. Let's talk about that. How is it? It's, it's, you know, it's good. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie and say that it's terribly important work. <laughs> it's in uh 
warranties, but uh, the group of people that I work with are awesome, and I feel like I'm I'm learning a lot every single day, just communicating with customers and just learning how to communicate in general and try to be as helpful as possible. So yeah, that's that is awesome. That's Congratulations! I think yeah. that having having good coworkers makes like a hundred percent of a difference. It's it's great when you enjoy the people that you work with. So that's good to hear. Yeah, and everyone seems to be on the on the same page about doing their best. Oh, that so helps a lot. That's good, especially coming especially coming from retail <sighs> where uh, every. <laughs> Okay, so I go, I've I've been back to, I used to work at a grocery store. I've been back to that grocery store several times since I left. And every time I talk to one of the, one of the cashiers or something, they say, oh, uh, things are still awful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible to work here. I've been here for 20 years. And that is the most yeah, heartbreaking people thing feel trapped. that I could possibly imagine i know a lot of people like that too yeah. i worked at walmart for god too too damn long and uh i feel yeah, oh my gosh I, feel, I didn't know that like i i have not been back i will not return back there but i know that even when i was there there were people who were like oh i have a nursing degree okay well why have you worked here for 25 oh years you know like it's it sucks that's crazy what about you guys? Any 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 big life life changes in the last three weeks? Nick had a niece. Yeah, I, I did. Don't know if we talked about that take too. Did we? I don't know. Oh, I so don't know. Long. It's been so long. I might not have even brought it up, even if it if it was after she was born. But uh, yeah, on June twenty fifth, my sister had a baby, and her name is Jamie, and she is so cool and she's really good and she is really like well behaved and I love dressing her up in different costumes I think it's really fun and right now we're working on amassing 31 to be able to post one every day of October <laughs> you know 31 baby costumes is not cheap so we're starting early I I donated one. Yes, you did. Yes, I you, can't wait to see her in it. Yeah, for the baby shower. Do you want you want to say it or do you want me to? I don't care. I can say it. I I had so the mother of Jamie, which is Nick's sister, is a big fan of um, Nightmare Before Christmas, and I told them for a while that they are not allowed to dress up as Jack or Sally until I give them permission. <laughs> And it's because I had this plan that I wanted to to buy them a little Oogie Boogie costume that they could put their baby in. And they finally had a baby, which means I could finally give them an Oogie Boogie costume. And I can't wait to see her in it. It's going to be very cute. Yeah. From having put on several costumes, uh, even just tonight, we took pictures of different costumes. Uh, she doesn't like being in costumes. Uh, like unless she, she screams until she falls asleep and then that's good, but I can't imagine she'll enjoy her Oogie Boogie costume, but we certainly will. <laughs> she can't even talk yet though. So I don't really know like what the big hype is. 
I don't get it. Yeah, everybody. So we went out of town this weekend, and my sister brought the baby, and I was there, and there was family from Atlanta, and everybody's freaking out over the baby. And I'm like, um, she can't even talk. Like, I'm here too. I'm cool. I'm fun. <laughs> Uh, she can't walk yet. She doesn't know her ABCs. Yes, like, she, she. I was like, she was shitting her pants like the whole weekend, <laughs> and I only shit my pants twice. I can <laughs> shit my pants too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't know. It just seemed like everybody was up Jamie's ass, and um, it's fine. No one was up Nick's ass. I'm yes. So sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, she turns a month. On the 25th, and uh, she still won't be able to do anything. So, stupid <laughs> babies. Yeah. And I've just been working. That's it for me. Well, that's really heartwarming that you were able to provide the oogie boogie. Yeah. Poster. Yes, that's how he was it's able nice. to afford it's it. It's nice to follow through on something. It's because he works, and then the time in between uh, one job and the other is just the time it takes for him to get to the other job. He like clocks out and then he's like, all right, I'm clocking in. It's very busy. That's why it's been three weeks since we've seen each other. So, yep. <sighs> yeah, I don't uh, overdo it. I know. <laughs> I know some things are by necessity, but too late for that, Daniel. It is too late. <laughs> <laughs> That's my secret. I'm always miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I got that reference. <laughs> Okay, so this movie has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes and it has 162.8 million, million domestic, $262.6 million international, and that is $425.4 million worldwide. And that's pretty good for a movie that's rated R, is not from an established IP, uh, you know the the brand is Quentin, so that's pretty um that's pretty impressive. I dig it. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know his highest grossing film? I'm yeah. pretty sure it is. Is Jango. it Jingo? I would not be surprised. Grossing. Like I know this yeah. and Inglorious Bastards were like the really high ones, but I wasn't sure. Or I'm not sure. Let me look. Django really is the highest grosser. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. why, that's I feel like that's the least discussed one of his movies for some reason. That's Django? Really strange. I yeah, I, whenever I hear about him, I always hear about like his older stuff or Kill Bill. Um I don't know. That's that's interesting. Well, Kill Bill is his older stuff now. <laughs> yeah, well yeah, I guess so. Uh but like this like revisionist history thing that he's doing has been the topic of a lot of conversations just because, you know, he's tackling very controversial uh, controversial subjects like slavery the holocaust the manson murders like yeah he this movie got five oscar nominations uh so it it got nominated for best motion picture of the year best achievement in cinematography and best uh sound editing and it won best performance by an actor in a supporting role which was christoph waltz second oscar uh winning in a quentin tarantino movie he one playing Hans Landa uh, for Inglorious Bastards. Wow. And Quentin Tarantino won Best Writing Original Screenplay. This was Quentin Tarantino's second Oscar for writing, the first being Pulp Fiction. And he's been nominated three times for directing, but he's never won. And it's it's unfortunate because I think 
I'm trying to remember exactly where it was from, but I know that he at one point said, like, he writes so that he can direct. Like, he really considers himself like a director. And that's a that's a shame that, you know, I mean, obviously, he's also a very talented writer, and I'm sure he knows that. But uh, I would like him to win a directing Oscar before he retires, and he has one shot left. He also wanted to, I don't know if we mentioned this in the previous part, he wanted to be the winningest, winning most um, screenwriter of all time so that they would rename the award the Quentin. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And so he wanted to, I think he just needed four to have that. And if he's still planning on retiring with his 10th film, uh, sorry to say that he's, he's missed the mark. On that, yep that that is a shame, especially if it's the movie I want it to be, which is Kill Bill Volume Three, which they're never going to give. That's the... not gonna happen. <laughs> uh, I don't need that negativity in my life. <laughs> Neither do our listeners. I also want to say um, I forgot one important award. I saw this and I was like, "Well, this is funny." So the MTV Movie Awards gives out an award called. Best WTF moment. And it's at the end when Candyland like explodes and it won. Oh my God. I was like, oh, okay. I'm sure they were all really excited about that. (laughs) That's definitely a deserving scene. Either that or the, uh, the gunfight where it's just volcano of blood. The movie feels the most Quentin Tarantino to me the moment that Calvin gets killed when everything just loses its mind and have you guys heard the thing where um I don't remember who it was where they said that Christoph Waltz saying sorry I couldn't resist or I couldn't resist was essentially Quentin Tarantino saying that to the <laughs> audience so that he could have a uh a gun gun battle. Oh my god. That is really funny. That's like perfect because everything was going to work out. And then it was just like I'm going to screw everything up really quick. <laughs> I'm going to make this movie longer than it um would have been by because like an it's hour. Fun, Jan. <laughs> Get it's it. Fun, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the last hour is absolutely incredible. One of the things I researched in these past three weeks was I was interested in whether it was appropriate for Quentin to be tackling this subject matter matter as a white man. And then I that kind of broke off into uh, the use of the N-word in the script and the depiction of slavery in the film. And in my research, I noticed that there was sort of two perspectives and the perspective from uh, black people who were writing about their experience in the film was a lot more mature and less defensive than white writers who felt the need to imagine that to, I know exactly. (laughs) That was, that was my thought as well. And, um, Going into it, uh, a lot of white writers' defense of his use of the N-word was, well, it was 
it was the time. You, what, what were they supposed to say? Uh, okay, so this is from a an a great BuzzFeed article written by Roxanne Gay, I believe is her name. And this is just an excerpt from that. Had Tarantino used historical accuracy to guide every aspect of Django Unchained, one might accept his explanation of using such words. But this is a movie that includes, among other oddities, a slave merrily enjoying herself on a tree swing of Big Daddy's plantation. When Tarantino suggests he is trying to achieve verisimilitude by infusing the script with the N-word, I cannot, I cannot help but feel he is being selective about how and where he chooses to honor historical accuracy. I knew from the start that I wasn't this movie's target audience. Racism and slavery aren't terribly amusing to me unless Dave Chappelle is running the show. I am exhausted by the subject, but Django isn't really a movie about slavery, but a spaghetti western set during the 1800s. Slavery is the movie's easily exploited backdrop. As with Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino found a traumatic cultural experience of a marginalized people and used it. And then one thing I want to add there is there was a lot of unfortunately uncomfortable quotes from Tarantino himself that were very presumptuous in why he chose to make the film. And he went so far to say is I made a film that uh, black men can watch and feel like they have a hero and get the revenge that they, they deserve. And it was, I say it was uncomfortable. It's like, okay, Quentin, <laughs> thank you for speaking for them I, I, I bet yeah. they really appreciate that and just really immature at the same time for someone who believed his movie was what it is he he can't let it speak for itself he has to he has to self-aggrandize and so it just comes off as a little uncomfortable and uh, <laughs> th this is a stretch but I've seen theories that Quentin really wants to be a black person himself <laughs> and so <laughs> his track record and things he has said and certain things he has included in movies sort of point in that direction i'm not saying that's what it is but he seems to have some immaturity in subject matter like this and that was that was a really poor way of discussing stuff i researched but now it's it's out there what do you guys take from that I think, I mean, I know he's been criticized for the use of the N-word and all of that. I mean, ever since the beginning, like since even back in Reservoir Dogs, it wasn't okay to say the N-word, especially a bunch of white guys saying, you know, like, obviously it was wrong then. I don't know why he continues to use it. This movie, I think I, I don't know, I wanted to be able to still enjoy it. And so when he said something like, you know, that's how they spoke back then, uh, I think just something in me latched onto that and was just like, okay, well, I guess that's a, a way I don't feel absolutely awful for watching this film and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. I mean, he doesn't have a very good track record when it comes to his public comments on uh, racial matters in his films. And he certainly doesn't have a filmography that is filled with movies that I think are going to be able to stand the test of time, unfortunately. Um, I mean, my favorite movie, <laughs> Kill Bill, doesn't have the N-word once, but uh, I just wanted You're to like, that yes, out. You're like, yes, we got one. <laughs> we got one. <laughs> we got two. Hell yeah. Um, 
I don't know. It's it's it is it's it's unfortunate that he. Um. Well, can, I don't know. Can I can I can I jump in real quick? And of course, I guess to discuss certain moments because I've had discussions about this with my friends before. You mention uh, the white cast and Reservoir Dogs using it. I mean the the characters. Um, yeah. Eric Stoltz and Quentin himself use the word in Pulp Fiction. And I just for that specific use, I I guess I just come it comes down to what's what's the purpose for it. And especially in the case of um, Quentin's character in in Pulp Fiction is is he using the N word because he is a racist person? And okay, that's fine. Racist, racist, racist character. But is that the purpose of the movie? And therefore, does it need to be in there? Because yeah. I'm just, you go down the line of thinking, Quentin, was this just an excuse so you could say the N-word in a movie a lot? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that was the thing about Django. And then it kind of bled into the Hateful Eight. There's absolutely no excuse for how many times it's said in his earlier films. And then finally, we're back in a time where people did unfortunately talk like that. But you are you point out something that is so right and relevant and important is that he is being selective. Uh, I love the word verisimilitude, by the way. That is beautiful. Um, I'm always happy when I pronounce it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a very nice word. Um, he's being selective, and I, I, it very well could be an excuse that he can give to be able to say the N word as many times as he wants to. I just figure by now that he would be like, okay, wow, you know, maybe uh, with all of this backlash, maybe I can make a movie that doesn't say that. I think, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that once upon a time in Hollywood has it. So quick, quick interruption about that. There, the N word isn't in the movie, but, the the line that I think of is when Cliff tells Rick not to cry in front of the Mexicans. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Yo. Okay. Uh, what about all of the the movies that, oh my God, what is Leonardo DiCaprio's name in this movie? Rick fucking Dalton. Rick. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Okay. And don't you forget it. <laughs> <laughs> they do a little bit of a time jump and they say the movies that he was in. It's a bunch of like really offensive stuff toward Native Americans. And like, <laughs> why? Like, what is the point? I don't know. I mean, I truly don't understand that part about him. If I can, if I can give a mild defense, I, I think some of it can be attributed to ego and immaturity. And I think he he genuinely loves cinema, and that includes the ugly parts of it, and the the parts that are still celebrated today. Yeah. And the way his his brain works is that he picks and chooses from all of the above. So it's not just okay. We're we're not going to have the most we're not going to have the most perfect characters ever. There's going to be some shades shades of ugly. It just it comes into contention with times now where it's like, okay, is the punchline that you can't laugh around Mexicans? Is that it? <laughs> is it is it is it being 
is is that it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, something, uh, clicked in my head. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, I think was like defending him one time and he was like, you know, when he cast me in all these movies and I'm normally the smartest guy in the room and like, does that, does that seem like something a racist would do? And it's like, no, maybe not. But does having someone say the N word 400 times seem like something a racist person would do? And it's like, yeah, uh, I knew that this topic was going to come up. if We discussed this movie and I was apprehensive about it, not only because we're three white guys, but also because <laughs> I love this movie. And should I just be like, okay, it says the N word too much. I shouldn't watch it like this. That's grounds for not enjoying the film. That's grounds for me not being able to support the film. I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, you know, uh, my black friend telling me that it's okay. That's not good enough because I remember when so many people were like upset that they changed the name of the Washington football team. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but I know uh, exactly what you're. Yeah, talking people about. were like, from oh. a slur of a slur for Native Americans. Yeah, to, and the and these people were like, I know Native, I know a Native American that doesn't care. I know this black guy that loves Trump. Everything's cool, <laughs> and it's like those are the worst arguments. <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know. I. Uh, I love Kill Bill. That's what I'll say. But I think <laughs> I love Kill I Bill. I think your ability to recognize it is what's important, and to realize that it's problematic, rather than just being the the defensive guy of saying like, "Nah, it's okay." Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. So I have a second section that. I would like to read this article was written by Jesse Williams. Um, you may know him from Grey's Anatomy. He's he's done some other stuff. I love him in Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> he has beautiful, striking eyes. Oh, my God. And, um, yes. Anyways, he's also he is also a very strong advocate. And I he wrote a great article. So and I took some parts from it. So I'm going to read some of it right now. The film follows a brave, cunning, and fearless lead character whose name starts with a D. Viewers of the film's trailer would think that the character is Django, played by Jamie Foxx. In fact, his name is Dr. King Schultz, a German portrayed by Christoph Waltz, who sacrifices his life in the pursuit of freedom and justice for the black man. It is the white Dr. King, who after sharing a motivational tale about a man reaching a mountaintop, nobly gives his life for black justice. The film's antagonist, Calvin Candy, played by Leo, supposedly runs one of the very worst plantations in all of Mississippi. Yet on the road, he dines with his slaves, and at home, his fields are mostly empty, and he only seems to have slaves in his house. Is this one of those rare slave plantations that primarily trades in polished silverwares and gossip? That authenticity card that Tarantino uses to buy all those N-words has an awfully selective memory. If only one black person, Django, displays the vaguest interest in gaining freedom, while the rest consistently demonstrate that they wouldn't do anything with that freedom were they to obtain it, then we're not able to become invested in them or their pursuits. We can't relate to shiftless characters. Being illiterate and or brown does not remove the ability to think or observe or yearn or plan or develop meaningful relationships. 
And then this is back to the use of the N-word. Uh, were such words used in Inglorious Bastards more than 100 times? How about 70? Okay, 30. 10? Thankfully, Tarantino knew that he was perfectly able to tell a story without such gimmicks. He also knew the community he claimed to be avenging wouldn't stand for it. So lots, lots of uh, hard words for Tarantino. Yeah, I don't know. There's no arguing with that. I mean, and not that I would want to. Like, I I just totally understand what he's saying. Like, especially back when it comes to this whole picking and choosing when you're going to be hyper-realistic and I don't know. Yeah, are we going to have a scene that's a man getting ripped apart by dogs, which is very effective and horrifying, Yeah, combined with the volcanic blood <laughs> so it's he's he's <laughs> he, he's having his cake and he's eating it too and it's yeah. white cake <laughs> <laughs> he definitely does have that like misogynistic nerd type personality that thinks that he can like do no wrong or maybe feels like he's part of this exclusive club which allows him certain privileges and that to me doesn't sit right with me of course for obvious reasons but i think what i'm struggling with most is that does that discount like does all of this suddenly make the performances in this movie like does it does it completely cancel those out and like specifically from from the the black performers in this movie who I think did such an incredible job. Like Carrie Washington, I think absolutely stole this movie. And I think, I think that's what's making it so difficult to, to hate or maybe makes it confusing to hate because it is, you're, you are really captivated by the characters. I don't know if I'm making any sense or going anywhere with this, but no, you, I, I mean, what you're you saying are. is, it's like this movie is still, really well done it's well acted it's well produced it's well shot it is well everything it just happens to be filled with controversy yeah i i i do think his i think his heart is genuinely in the right place i think his instincts get the worst of him yeah and so you his his impulse is to to shock and awe when there needs to be a more delicate touch at the same time, like going back to your being conflicted over the more positive aspects, mm-hmm. um, I think you you are totally right and still appreciating appreciating those things. And I there's still there's there's stuff that I love about the movie too. Like I I love the fact that all the white villains in the film are made to have be so well mannered, and it I feel like there's a great juxtaposition there of all oh, these well mannered assholes are dummies and they're awful slaveholders. So I think, I think the film is still doing some things well and you, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of acknowledging. Yeah. Taking it with a grain of salt. Would this have been different if Tarantino wrote this, if he gave it to like a black director to create, like, how do you think that would have changed things if at all? I think there are certain things that a black director wouldn't do. It brings up the conversation of, you know, are we at the place where we want white people telling 
these kinds of stories. But then when you go to Jesse, is it Jesse Williams? Is that what you said? Yeah, Jesse. His name's Avery on, <laughs> on, <laughs> on Grey's Anatomy. Uh, um, I've had lots of dreams about him. Um, <laughs> but like, okay, so I mean, him pointing out that like King Schultz is the protagonist of this film, you know, plays into a very common debate that we're having on a lot of movies now, where it's like, oh, these are white savior films. And is that is that enough to make you not want to watch the film? Is that enough to make a film not worth watching? God, I just, I don't know. I don't know the right answer. And I guess nobody does, but. I mean, this is his highest grossing movie. Yeah. Um, it, I, that's, it spoke to people clearly. So I'm just, I'm wondering if a, a person who would go for something like the blind side would view this the same way. Dr. King Schultz's character, the same way that they would view Sandra Bullock, like to have that feeling of a white person, like, God damn, we're so helpful. <laughs> well, you know, I, like I'll say as a, as a white person, uh, having, I, having seen and enjoyed both of those films upon first viewing or whatever, it didn't, it didn't click in my head that they were like, that's just not something I even noticed. Yeah, of course it wouldn't for yeah for us. And that's like I'm checking my privilege. That's because I don't I don't have to to think about those things. There are a lot of uh, thoughts that go through people of color's heads that have never gone through my head because they never have to. And uh, I'm privileged for that. That is one of the many many benefits to being a white male. Uh, and it's like a, lo- a lot of movies being sort of brought up. I don't know. I don't wouldn't say like recently, but at least being brought to my attention recently as being, you know, sort of problematic. Like I think of the help, the help, yeah. you know what I mean? Like that, that movie, uh, I've really, 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 really liked that movie. And now, when you have like the stars of the film, the uh, the people of color stars of the film coming out and and saying that you know they feel like it wasn't a good film for them to be in or whatever, you know, now I feel like maybe I shouldn't like those kinds of films. And it it's like, how do you? Who has the right answer? How do you not seem like? a complete asshole or racist in today's society for liking a film. And then how do you like, I don't know how to, I don't know. I don't know how to vet if the the films are, are right or wrong or if it's, it's, if it's bad enough or if it's problematic enough to be considered something that I shouldn't be watching or shouldn't be celebrating. I truly don't know how to feel about that. Well, I think the fact that you're you're grappling with it is good because you could be defensive and dismissive. Yeah. <laughs> if I could play devil's advocate here, I'm not going. I was saying like that. That's, also, <laughs> that's the wrong thing to do here is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying anyone should be able to say it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the fact that I'm grappling with it doesn't really seem like it's enough either. Like, oh, he feels conflicted about it, but he's still watching. You know, it's like, who gives yeah. a fuck if you feel conflicted about it white boy like i don't fucking know all right you're doing your best 
<laughs> we're all doing our best except the people who aren't but i think we are yeah i would love to hear people's thoughts about this there are a lot of movies that we have to acknowledge that it's wrong but still try to come at it from like a an, uh, an objective point of view and we contextualize them yeah and i think i think a willingness to listen and just like give Give the mic to the people of color. Yeah. Defer yeah. to defer to them and let them guide the discussion. Yeah. Uh jumping As in. As we on, have a white guest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank goodness these three white boys are doing this <laughs> difficult work. <laughs> um I wanna say I'm glad you brought up contextualization because something that comes to mind is uh, Disney's unwillingness to put Song of the South on Disney Plus. Now, I want to say I I have not seen the film. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, what I am not a fan of is Disney being in control of that narrative. And what I think yeah. they should do is make the film available and provide so many resources that you cannot avoid when you're on it on Disney Plus documentaries about why it's problematic docu just so many resources that give the chance to contextualize why the movie is problematic wow and i think i think that, that <laughs> i wrote I, I wrote a review of the original fantasia not too long ago and it kind of got derailed by me going on a tirade about them not having song of the south not available but i <laughs> again i <laughs> These things should not be hidden. They need to be front and center and they need to be uh, people that need to be educated on them and they need to be made aware of what what the problem is. That's something I never even considered, but I feel like that is a fantastic solution. I think I'm so in this, you know, day and age of cancel culture. I'm always like, nope, avoid it like the plague. Like we can't talk about it. We can't, you know, acknowledge it. And I think you're absolutely right that there needs to be some accountability and there does need to be some education there to kind of more problems are just going to arise from just pretending it all didn't exist. Right. right. And I honestly, I mean, that is something that Quentin has, has said specifically about this film trying to be, to bring up, you know, hard issues that America hasn't faced. Do you think that people leave this film less empathetic or, just towards towards the story of the characters. I guess this is a really crass way of putting it, but do you leave the film feeling racist? <laughs> <laughs> I leave the film being like white people suck. That's that's kind of how I feel too and also very like like happy the way that things turned out and yeah, I'm I'm and glad happy that people yeah. got what they deserved. Um is it is it like is that okay because the black people win in the end? Like, how do you feel, Daniel? To make you feel better, Nick. I mean, I still, you know, there there are movies that are more problematic than this one that I I still really enjoy. I watch this film and I I focus on the positives more than the negatives, and but that doesn't erase the negatives. And yeah. I think I think it's in, important to acknowledge them, like in this platform that we in which we are right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you said that like it like it was just like we were recording a take and you're in the you're you're in the yeah. the the booth and you're like, "Yeah, that was a good take. We're yeah. we're keeping that one." <laughs> Sounds good. I'm like so flustered. I don't know, like I'm like overexposed or whatever, but my face is all red. Like I just don't want to say or do the wrong thing or and like I also I don't want to ha- offend anyone for liking this film and I don't want to like this film and if it if it offends people and I don't know. Oh, can I say Again, another thing? And I th- yeah. I think this is the important part about just being being open. Anything we said can be wrong. And I think we're all willing to talk about why we're wrong. We are totally open to doing that. So if yeah. if if someone were to reach out to you guys and say, "Hey, your what you said really upset me," I think it's still it. You need to have the maturity to say, "Okay, let's let's address your feelings because your Absolutely. feelings were hurt." Let yeah. So I th- I think it's important to do that. Definitely, definitely. I just. I think that nowadays with cancel culture, it makes a lot of people like afraid that they are going to say something that offends someone. Now I'm not worried about getting canceled. Like if I say something that's warranting me getting canceled, then cancel me. But like, I'm, you don't want to worry feelings. Yeah. I don't want to like, I don't know. I just don't, I don't want to be a dick. I don't want to (laughs) like, you know, exist on the wrong side of history uh, for appreciating a film like this, <laughs> you know, I think it's safe to say that all three of us are willing to admit that we're wrong and are very eager and open to criticism and learning more. If there is something that needs to be said here, we'd love any and all feedback. Yeah. And if it's just us listening, that's, that's awesome. And I also, I think it's important. This is something that I kind of learned recently that, you know, it's not, it's not black people's job to educate us either. Like I, that is something that I, I know that we have to put the work in to do our own research and stuff like that. 100%. If you are a, a person of color who is listening to our podcast, you have no obligation to us to, to explain to us why we're wrong. Um, but if you, you know, uh, if you just want to email us like a like a middle finger or something like that, we will reassess. <laughs> we will re- go regroup. Just let us know we're wrong. Boy. Whew. Wow. Okay. Well, then let's go back and, and talk about this. Listen, this is bullshit. Okay. This is – I have a point that is going to make all of this uh, – this, this is going to sound completely – Nick's got the he's got he's got the one sentence that's gonna disregard everything that came before. <laughs> no, I'm it like, just sounds it sounds so like um what is trivial like soup yes trivial exactly like <laughs> who the fuck cares? That's I know I after this discussion I'm looking over my notes I'm like Jesus like none of this who cares who cares yeah well, let's talk about it let's let's hear what you have to say. But the thing that I like just saw and was like, oh, well, okay, this doesn't matter is the guy whose slave loses the Mandingo fight and like in Calvin Candy's thing, that's Franco Nero. And he played Django in the 1966 film Django and then ended again in the 87 film Django Strikes Again. And I remember Tarantino talking about like some of the shots that he had composed over his career and uh, that he was like the most proud of. And the two Django's at the bar was one of them. 
<laughs> and I always thought that was that was pretty neat. Like yeah. he's like the D silent. And he's like, I know. <laughs> this is this is so this is funny that you said um I mean it's not funny, but it's interesting that you said uh that Jesse Williams said that like he Django really isn't the star of the movie because Will Smith was reading for this role. He was completely uh like he was envisioned for this role by even Quentin and he wanted him to play it. And uh, Will Smith turned it down because he wasn't the lead. And it's like, Oh shit. Okay. Um, Do you think Will Smith could have been understated enough? No. Yeah. I I think he's just too charismatic and not, don't get me wrong. Jamie is as well, but there, I don't know if he could have done the, the transformation. Yeah. I think Jamie Foxx is like a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. And the performance he gives here, I I can't imagine anyone else in that role. Again, something completely trivial, but if you're interested, in 2013, Django was adapted as a seven-issue comic series, uh, which you actually can buy in a hardcover omnibus now. Um, and then in 2015, they also crossed over with Zorro in the comics, and there was... <laughs> You know how Quentin has a lot of ideas that are never going to become movies, not Kill Bill Volume 3. That is not what I'm going to add to that list. But there was talk for a while to get Antonio Banderas's Zorro to actually like cross over with the Django sequel. And it would be Django and Zorro like in the comics. And that, I think that would be really cool, but it will <laughs> never happen. I heard that Gerard Carmichael wrote a script for it, and it is happening. As like, like Tarantino's 10th film? Not as a film, as a series. Huh. With both of them? Potentially, but it's weird. I, I've heard so much wacky Tarantino news the last few years, and there's been that one and the them making a TV series from the bounty law from once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. I heard that's happening too. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound too, too like, Ooh, the wind told me, but (laughs) something, something, something's gelling. I feel like, I feel like it's going to happen. Dan would know he's in California. He's, he's the closest. I, you know, I, I I licked my finger. I put it to the air and, I heard that the crossover between Zoro and Django is going to happen. So. You heard whispers in the wind that it just, it was going to happen. So that would make me extremely happy. Um, yeah. Extremely happy for I sure. Think it's going to happen. So I, th- I mean like Quentin Tarantino doesn't have to direct it either. Like, you know, he could write it um, and just have somebody else direct it or I don't know. Uh, and here's the thing, and I, I've talked to this with my with Kevin before, is he can do anything he wants. Any I, any streaming service would yeah. be thrilled to yeah. throw so much money at his feet, <laughs> and he could do whatever he wants with it. So I don't know why he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I well, think maybe he will because he just said movies. You know, uh, I think like. TV shows aren't, or you know, miniseries, TV shows, books. Uh, I mean, I would love to 
have some sort of like book on screenwriting from him because problematic as he is, he is an incredible screenwriter. Yeah. I want to know how his mind works too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also just wanted to point out just cause we're talking about books and stuff. The hateful eight actually started out as a sequel novel to Django called Django in white hell. Uh, but he <laughs> said that he scrapped it because Django seemed too much like of a morally sound character to fit in with the tone of that movie. I mean, all eight of those people in that movie are kind of, you know, shitty people. <laughs> oh, um, this this isn't really related to anything. It's just vague Tarantino news. He just released um, the book version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which Ooh. which fleshes everything out. I mean, it's the book version of one of his movies, and like a novelization or like a publishing of the script. It's a novelization, so it's it's the events of the movie and everything else too. So, like, I'm pretty sure gotcha. it goes into Rick Dalton's career. It goes into Cliff Booth's life. Um, so I would love that for all of his movies because I the yeah. eight the eight hour of Inglorious Bastards exists. Make it a book. Yeah, exactly. That sounds awesome. So I think we talked a little in take two about this being the first film of Quentin's not directed by Sally Mankey, uh, you know, who tragically died uh, from heat exhaustion on a hike in 2010. If you look at the details of that, that's that sounds they found her at the bottom of a ravine. Her dog was still there with her. Like, it's tragic. And she was young, too. She was like in her 50s. Uh, Okay. So apparently working without Sally really took an emotional toll on Quentin during Django and um, Fred Raskin, who had worked under Sally as an assistant editor on Kill Bill, the best Quentin Tarantino movie, just saying, uh, stepped in to do the job. And uh, Tarantino said that they put a sign up during the post-production process that said WWSD, which is what would Sally do? And that made me really happy. Um, Fred obviously, you know, did a wonderful job on Jingo. Like, I think it's really well edited. Uh, he got nominated for a BAFTA and has been Quentin Tarantino's editor on his subsequent films as well. Interestingly enough, though, a huge criticism leveled against both The Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that they felt longer than they were. And that there were problems with the pacing, both things that you can't really say about any of his other movies, at least in my opinion. Uh, And, you know, it's obviously not just a Fred Raskin issue if the film's pacing is off. You know, I'm certainly not going to be a part of the Blame the Editor Club, but it is interesting to think about the shift, you know, that happened after Sally Minkie died with his films, because a lot of people feel like The Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are way too long and they're really not that long so i know that there's like an hour and a half of unused footage here that quinn has said he'd love to edit back into the story and play it in a four-part miniseries and i'm prone to believing that might happen because the hateful eight his next film did exactly that on netflix and i honestly don't really care if it's a four-hour movie or a miniseries i just want to see that footage the four-hour cut of hateful eight is Totally unnecessary, but I ate it up. It clearly didn't need to be a thing because the movie existed on its own and was fine, but it is still really great on Netflix, and I would imagine it's still on Netflix. I don't know, though. 
Um, I also wanted to just say one thing. He also seems to have developed a great relationship with James Gunn because he did both Guardians and Gunn Suicide Squad that's coming out this year. Fred Raskin? Yeah. Did he do uh, both Guardians movies? Yep. Both of them. Doesn't he? I'm pretty sure he does the Fast and Furious movies. Dude. I know that he's he's done uh, at least uh, at least one of them, but I didn't really bring that up because that, that's not like a a huge feather in his cap. Um, he also is like attractive. Hold on, let me show you. <laughs> Fun fact about Sally Menke: the director of Galaxy Quest was married to her. Aww. Oh shit! How do you feel about that movie, Daniel? You know, I actually watched it recently, and I think it's a uh, it's a good movie. That's that's just what it is. <laughs> it's a good movie. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a good movie. That's yeah, all I needed. That's the yeah. correct answer. That's all I needed. That one has a very special place in my heart. That one is one that I specifically remember renting all the time at the at the video rental place whenever <laughs> we would go. It it's uh, a it definitely feels like it should be on a VHS tape. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right, look at this daddy. Guys, Google Fred Raskin. He's got a he's got a honker, but he's still I'm like, you know, he probably is pretty rich. I, you know. Oh, I love a big schnoz. I love it. He's gorgeous. This is something that any casual fan of this movie already knows, but uh, just some behind the scenes stuff that Leo improvised the part where he smashes the crystal on the table, and that's actually real. I don't. Maybe we went over this in take two. Um, so like that actually happened. He was actually bleeding and needed stitches after the scene. And I know it's debated whether or not they added fake blood when he like touched Carrie Washington's face. Um, or if it was real blood, I hope it's fake. Yeah, I've heard, I hear people like saying that they, that they let him smear the, his bone blood on her face. I cannot imagine that they did that, but I like, I have heard several times from like several different accounts of that situation that the shot where he he hurts his hand is still in the movie. Like that is the one that they used. So uh, I would imagine maybe once they cut, you know, and we're like, Hey, we're going to go with that. We'll put the blood on, we'll put the fake blood on so we can smear it on another actress's face. Because like, I would, I just can't see Leonardo DiCaprio doing that. I I hope it's fake because if it's not, that's not okay. (laughs) exactly exactly that's like you should not smear your (laughs) uh bodily fluids on anyone especially carrie washington (laughs) unless they have consent uh yeah consent (laughs) i'm gonna go over uh jango's blue costume that he picked there was a lot of information on this it was inspired by thomas gainsborough's painting a portrait of a young gentleman uh i think it's more popularly known as the blue boy in hollywood uh, I think it was it's referenced like throughout cinema. It's referenced and used in a lot of Joker films. I read that Shirley Temple had a whole episode about it. And it's basically this imagery or this shorthand for wealth and high culture and sort of like arrogance and pretentiousness and all that kind of comes with that. Uh, and the article that I read said that over the past century, Gainsborough's painting has been an emblem of gender nonconformity, a populist punchline for bumbling American stooges, a nostalgic reference to privileged childhoods, a high culture MacGuffin for nihilist criminals. And I think I thought that that was interesting because it really does put 
a tone to that choice. Uh, It seems more of like a mockery than anything else. And I think it, regardless of whether or not the actual Django character knew that, I just think it's kind of like a funny and interesting choice, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And then my last bit here, I think it's interesting that Schultz is being advertised as a dentist. I don't know if in the movie he ever mentioned that he actually was. Was that ever mentioned? He actually was? He's a dentist, yeah. But he's riding around in this carriage with that that tooth that's on his that's on his cart, and the antagonist is a guy named Candy, and I just think that that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's very all. good point. That's a, I never I never noticed that. That's funny. I think yeah. Christoph Waltz had a, and I'm not making this up. Christoph Waltz had a springy tooth installed to his limo to the Golden Globes or the Oscars that year i love that that is amazing i love that (laughs) uh christoph waltz has given some like really good award speeches like not that they're particularly profound or anything but um i mean they might have been i don't remember that part of it but i do know that he um did the that's a bingo when he won for (laughs) inglorious bastards and then he says for any uh, astronomy aficionados um, the North Star is that one, and he points to Quentin when he went when he won his second Oscar. Oh, it's like white men congratulating other white men. It's great. I was gonna say like, oh, how do I feel about that? Uh, I don't know. I don't fucking know. This <laughs> detaching from that a little bit, isn't it kind of cool that an actor has won awards for one director's movies? Like both of Kristoff's mm. wins have been for Tarantino projects. You got to have a special a special appreciation yeah. and relationship with the person after that. Oh, definitely. I'd be afraid to work with them again though, because then I'd be like, Oh shit. If this one doesn't win a, a three Pete, <laughs> then I'm like, eh, I didn't go out on top. <laughs> if I won two Oscars, I would fucking retire. <laughs> well, and he's what? That was a three year period. Yeah. Oh, but wow. he, really he, quick. He, I mean, he also has Quentin to thank for his career. Cause I mean, I don't, I mm-hmm. Who knew who Christoph Waltz was before Inglorious Bastards? <laughs> I certainly did not. And I honestly don't think I've actually like followed his career since. I don't really know what he's up to. Not as good as in um, Tarantino movies, unfortunately. Nope, nope, nope. God, yeah, I can't think of a single other thing that he's been in. Jamie Foxx did say that he learned a lot about acting working with Christoph Waltz just his, oh well that's good the specificity of his movements and mannerisms as dr king schultz i love that i always love hearing stuff like that mm-hmm. and a less a less fun fact now after the fact is uh, <laughs> jamie fox would also stay on set during baby driver to watch kevin spacey act because he he was just blown away by the craft i know it it sucks now (laughs) it sucks a lot now but shit this is a great episode i'm i'm happy to have uh broken you for it (laughs) break you did you have a good time at least i had a great time honestly good thank you thank you guys so much for having me on 
Thanks. This is your last time that you'll be on here. Sorry yeah. to say, but you know, I'm oh, just kidding. I, I, I wouldn't blame you. Uh, the next time I'm, I'm probably going to get you canceled. So <laughs> no, the next movie we're doing with you is Bambi or, yes. or something. <laughs> Let's talk about the meat industry. <laughs> no let's, paddington let's Something talk about cancelable let's talk about prion disease <laughs> oh my god what is that oh it's disturbing uh oh it's god. this disease that deer have been getting in the midwest that just makes their brains dissolve and they become zombies essentially cute love it so yeah you should google that when you get a chance <laughs> we'll, we'll and do. don't i mean you guys are closer to, to there than i am don't uh <laughs> be careful of the deer meat you eat because i know yeah. you guys love your deer meat <laughs> mm. i did not record myself doing an outro like i said i would so can i just say hey check out my podcast super serious <laughs> podcast man is that what it's called it's been a while <laughs> since i've done an episode no, you had to do an outro. Oh. Didn't you say there was something we had to remind you to plug? Yeah, so in addition to plugging my own podcast, I want to uh, plug this great Letterboxd reviewer. Her name is uh, Sally Jane Black. She, Her reviews blow my mind. I mean, they're... She'll, she'll rip apart a movie you love, but she'll do it in a way that's political and timely and just really educational and she's actually getting her um transition surgery and she created a gofundme to fund it so i just i just wanted to plug it i think she's halfway through getting her desired amount she has a surgery date she has a lot of things planned that she hadn't been able to prior so i just wanted to plug her gofundme for that awesome that is awesome yeah, and we'll we'll put her info in the uh, in the whatever the hell it's called. Yeah. Yep. 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 Now go record an outro. Hey there. Did you like what you just heard? Yeah, me neither. By the chance that you did, you can hear what I have to say about movies and other things on my podcast, Super Serious Podcast Men. It is the home of two shows, Super Serious Movie Men, where I have other guests and a lot of frequent recurring people on to talk about their favorite movies and other movie-related topics and just talk about life in general. So if you want to go down a crap rabbit hole, crabbit hole, check it out. It's available on all podcast platforms, I guess this is the part where I would talk about great episodes I've done, but I'd rather talk about toilet paper. I was a big Kroger brand guy, and then Courtney just bought Charmin for the first time, and it's okay. It, it does the job, but it's not, it's not the best. I still, I hate to say it, I'm still a fan of the Kroger brand. I've heard good things about Kirkland as well. Um, I haven't had a lot of experience using that, but...